Tonight's chapter includes a shocking request. It comes from one of the, or some of the tribes of Israel. A request to Moses, followed by his very strong response. And then a subsequent negotiation. The time for Israel's entrance to the promised land is nearing, and so the timing of the request is especially intriguing. The nearness of the land is both timely, because they're in their 40th year of wilderness wandering. The nearness of the land is also geographical, because they're right on the other side of the Jordan River in the region of Moab. The Israelites are located in this Moabite territory, and right across the Jordan River is Jericho. And they're going to cross the Jordan River in the book of Joshua. And therefore, in terms of time and geography, we can speak of the nearness of the land in a major way. All of that makes tonight's request surprising. The wilderness generation has died out. And so the chapter tonight is not coming from the rebellious Numbers 13 and 14 group that came out of the Exodus. These final chapters in Numbers are forward-looking and how they pertain to life in the post-wilderness years. And the request tonight that is shocking, given the location and time, comes from two tribes who say, what if we just stayed on this side of the Jordan and didn't cross? We read in verses 1 to 5 the request. Now the people of Reuben and the people of Gad had a very great number of livestock. And they saw the land of Jazer and the land of Gilead, and behold... The place was a place for livestock. So the people of Gad and the people of Reuben came and said to Moses and to Eleazar the priest and to the chiefs of the congregation, Adaroth, Dibon, Jazer, Nimrah, Heshbon, Eliele, Sebam, Nebo, Beon, the land that the Lord struck down before the congregation of Israel is a land for livestock. And your servants have livestock. And they said, if we found favor in your sight... Let this land be given to your servants for a possession. Don't take us across the Jordan. Don't take us across the Jordan. Why are they bringing this up at all? Well, they speak of these cities that the Lord had struck down before the congregation of Israel. Because in this area, and even up to Bashan, there were some victories that Israel experienced in Numbers 21. They defeated the kings of Sihon and Og. When it tells us here in Numbers 32, from these tribes of Gad and Reuben, well, Lord, you struck down some people before uh, the Israelites. And these are the kinds of cities they have in mind. These Ataroth and Dibon, these are not names of people, but really places. You see even the name Heshbon, which reminds us of this location here. All of this, Israel has in their recent memory victories from the Lord on their behalf. Now, these victories on this side of the Jordan were meant to foreshadow the conquest. They were meant to stir and reinforce within the people of Israel, the Lord is going to give us the land. But they're looking at the lay of things. They recognize, well, we've got a great number of livestock. And this place, well, my goodness, it looks like a great spot for our goats and our sheep and all of the different uh, livestock that we have. And so they think, well, let's come to Moses. And they bring up all these locations in verse 3 and 4. And they say, well, this land is a land for livestock. And your servants, well, we happen to have a lot of those. So in verse 5, if we have found favor in your sight, let the land be given to your servants for a possession. 
Possession is an interesting word because it's the language synonymous with inheritance. Israel is heading into their possession, right? The promised possession. That's the land on the western side of the Jordan River. This will be, this will be the land of Israel. The land of Israel where you've got the Sea of Galilee and the Jordan River running all the way down to the Dead Sea. Where you've got the eastern part of uh, or eastern territories from the Jordan. And then the western side, this is the land of promise. These tribes said in verse 5, don't take us across the Jordan. Now, you are not surprised that this irks Moses. He's 120 years old. He's been dealing with these people for a long time. And uh, there's not a rock nearby or a staff in his hand for him to strike, though he did that earlier in anger. I bet if he smacked one of them in the head, water would come from it. I think it's just the sort of situation where Moses is so frustrated that uh, it reminds him of the earlier wilderness generation. And he says in verses 6 to 15, his frustrated response. Beginning with a question, he says to the people of Gad and the people of Reuben, Shall your brothers go to war while you sit here? In other words, we all had one collective mindset, leaving Egypt from bondage, heading through the wilderness to Sinai, from Sinai to the promised land. Then that is postponed for 40 years because of unbelieving wicked Israelites. And then that's come to an end. And we're going to head across. God's given us victory. We're on the eastern side of the Jordan. And are you just going to stay here now? (laughs) Your brothers are going to go to war and you two tribes are going to sit here. Why will you discourage the heart of the people of Israel from going over into the land that the Lord has given them? See, what Moses is concerned about is, well, if you bow out now, have you thought, have you given one moment's reflection on what this is going to mean for the morale of the people? Because back in Numbers 13 and 14, do you remember what the spies came back with? A mixed report. Most of the spies were fearful. And it sent panic throughout the entire Israelite community. And they were so concerned and so panicky in their response that they were willing to say, let's choose a new leader. We're going to go back to Egypt. Why have we been brought out here to die in the wilderness? If we go into that land, we will be prey. Our children will be prey and our women and wives pray for the people of that land. It sent absolute panic through the people. And he says here, don't you realize what's going to happen here in verse 7? He says, you're going to discourage the hearts of everyone there. You're going to discourage them from going over into the land. Now, the the Reubenites and the Gadites are looking at their situation. And it's very practical. They've got a lot of livestock. They're looking at the land that's been recently conquered on the eastern side of the Jordan. They think, well, you know. No no one else is uh, dwelling on this land right now. Um, The Lord's given us victory. And uh, this looks like a great spot for everything we've got. But the problem is, as Moses points out, they are not thinking through how this is going to impact everybody else. They are not just individuals. They are a nation. They have an identity together corporately. And two of the tribes are just going to not cross? Seems unthinkable. In fact, at this point in the book of Numbers, 
We've seen the dying out of the wilderness generation, and we are probably somewhat surprised that the new generation has two tribes willing to entertain this idea. You might think, wait a second, we just suspected this from the previous group. But from these, and then in verse 8, Moses says, your fathers did this when I sent them from Kadesh Barnea to see the land. You see, this doesn't just remind the reader of what's happened earlier. Moses is invoking Numbers 13 and 14. That unbelieving and um, rebellious episode that was such a threshold in the life of the Israelites. He explains in verse 9, For when they went up to the valley of Eshgal and saw the land, they discouraged the heart of the people of Israel from going into the land that the Lord had given them. And the Lord's anger was kindled on that day. And he swore... So now Moses is remembering the Lord's earlier judgment. Here's what the Lord had sworn. In verse 11, Surely none of the men who came up out of Egypt from 20 years old and upward shall see the land I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, because they have not wholly followed me. That seems to be an emphasis here. That no one's in this half-heartedly, or aren't supposed to be, but have wholly followed the Lord. He says, none of them except Caleb and the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, and Joshua, the son of Nun, for they have wholly followed the Lord. I think what Moses is putting out for them is that Caleb and Joshua were examples to imitate. And it was too bad that they seemed to be among the minority of the spies who in the majority had fainting hearts. And then discouraged everybody else in their, say, in their words simply like, well, we're not going to go over. We can't. Now, the reason here is different in Numbers 32. They've come so far and for so long. But this is a livestock reason. Moses isn't satisfied with that. In Moses' estimation, this is too much like the earlier people who used some reason, a practical reason... To not go over into the land. Well, in verse 13, it tells us the Lord's anger was kindled against Israel. Moses is still recounting, okay? Still recounting. For these Israelites. He's just wanting them to remember their history. The Lord's anger was kindled against Israel, and he made them wander in the wilderness 40 years. Until all the generation that had done evil in the sight of the Lord was gone. And behold, you have risen in your father's place. A brood of sinful men. To increase still more the fierce anger of the Lord against Israel. These are strong words. This is strong medicine for the the Israelites. Moses here cares for their well-being. He longs for the promises of Yahweh to come to pass. And he knows he himself is not going over into that land. Oh, he wants to. And these two tribes don't want to anymore. They've traveled so far and so long to say, what if we just stopped right here? It seems ludicrous. And then in verse 15, for if you turn away from following him, the Lord that is, if you turn away from following him, he will again abandon them in the wilderness and you will destroy all this people. You know what Moses is afraid of? Wilderness generation 2.0. That's what he's afraid of. After what they've just gone through, Moses says, oh, I can see what's coming. 
I can see what's coming. You have risen in your father's place, you brood of sinful men. You're going to turn from following the Lord, whereas Caleb and Joshua had only wholly followed the Lord. And you're not acting like them. You're going to stay back, discourage all the people, provoke the judgment of the Lord. Moses here, you can just imagine how bewildered this man is. After all, he has gone through. And as far as he has traveled, and as much as he has endured for them. Well, they've got some negotiating skills. So here's their proposal. In verses 16 and 17, or verses 16 through 19, really, they have a negotiation plan. So they draw near to Moses. I want to be clear, they didn't open with this. They just said, don't make us cross over. Moses is saying, that is unacceptable. I can't even believe that would enter your mind. And their response is, well, then what if we do this? We'll build sheepfolds here for our livestock and cities for our little ones. But we will take up arms. That means we're going to go fight and we'll be ready to go before the people of Israel, which means in front of Until we have brought them to their place. And our little ones shall live in the fortified cities because of the inhabitants of the land. Because of the inhabitants of the land. You know, that's the same kind of concern, even if it seems subtle, that the Numbers 13, 14 people have. They didn't want to bring everybody over because, you know, what about what would happen to their children? They expect the other ten tribes to cross over with all their children. So here in verses 16 and 17, they say, well, here's what we'll do. We'll build sheepfolds and then we will leave our little ones. Now, of course, the little ones are going to be kept by those that are not fighting. In verse 18, we will not return to our homes until each of the people of Israel has gained his inheritance, for we will not inherit with them on the other side of the Jordan and beyond. Because our inheritance has come to us On this side of the Jordan. Oh, really? Says who? Says the Lord? Not from any chapter I've seen. Our inheritance has come to us on this side of the Jordan to the east. As far as we can tell in Numbers 32, this is the deduction they have drawn as a result of how much divine revelation? Big zero. That's how much. And so they say, well, here's what we'll do. We'll cross over. We'll fight. We'll leave everybody else in our families here with our sheep and the sheepfolds we build. And then after we fight and Israel gets all settled, and we'll go back. We will cross the Jordan with you and then cross back over. In verses 20 to 24, Moses' response and warning. Moses says, if you will do this. If you will take up arms to go before the Lord for the war, and every armed man of you will pass over, every armed man of you, I mean, I'm just going to emphasize that for a moment, because I think it'll matter for later. And every armed man of you will pass over the Jordan before the Lord until he's driven out his enemies from before him, and the land is subdued before the Lord. You see, Moses here has in view the coming conquest. That's exactly what these verses are pointing toward. And the book of Joshua is going to narrate the entrance into the land, the crossing of the Jordan, the tribes going forth. And he says here, well, if you will take up arms and if you'll go before the people, if you will engage in this battle and the land is subdued, then after that you shall return and be free of obligation to the Lord and to Israel. And this land shall be your possession before the Lord. 
This seems to be a kind of concession that Moses is willing to make. And I think Moses views himself practically in a very difficult spot. Because if the Gadites and Reubenites don't cross over and fight, Moses is concerned that nobody else is going to go anyway. He's concerned that the discouragement will spread like a virus in the camp. So Moses is saying, okay, what could be the best of both worlds that they get some of what they want and the the tribes don't have to be discouraged by a tremendous depletion of fighting forces is you will come and fight for us and then you will go and you will be free of obligation to Israel. I think those words nonetheless should trouble us that this is the agreement the Gadites and the Reubenites are forging with Moses. This is very strange. Now that's Moses' if statement that if you do this. Well, what if you don't? Well, in verse 23, but if you will not do so, behold, you have sinned against the Lord and be sure your sin will find you out. Now that statement, your sin will find you out, it is the kind of statement that can be lifted from this passage as a truth across the Old and New Testaments about the tragedy of what sin brings and the consequences ensuing with sin in the lives of God's people. And here it is definitely applicable to the Gadites and Reubenites. They are making an agreement. And therefore, we should see this as a kind of oath. Moses is using conditional statements that sound like, if you do this, then here will be your good outcome. And if you don't do this, then here will be the judgment. It sounds like he's setting before them, keeping your oath or swearing falsely in the name of the Lord and then bearing upon your head the sin. Your sin will find... He says, be sure your sin will find you out. He's warning them that they're playing with fire here. That if, they're, if the time comes and the Lord is going to lead the people over the Jordan to the promised land, if you guys decide not to go, then you will bear whatever the judgment of the Lord means for you. And the last time the judgment of the Lord broke out in the camp... 24,000 people died in the Lord's judgment in Numbers 25 because of their idolatry and immorality. In other words, the deliberate, premeditated breaking of the law of God leads to disaster. So he says, build cities for your little ones, verse 24, and folds for your sheep and do what you have promised So I'm just emphasizing that language to say we should view this as a kind of swearing an oath situation. I know they didn't say, my hand to God, here's what I'm pledging to do. But this is an oath setting. In verses 25 to 27, the people of Gad and the people of Reuben said to Moses, your servants will do as my Lord commands. Lord there in my translation is a little L, and I think that's appropriate because I don't think this is referring to Yahweh, but rather the, the one they view as their leader, the supreme leader within Israel in the human sense, and that is Moses. He, he is giving them these instructions. This agreement is being forged. They say, we will do what you have said, our little ones in verse 26, our wives, our livestock, our cattle shall remain there in the cities of Gilead. Now, Gilead is this area here. You can see Gilead uh, being written vertically. But this area, this area is luscious. And beautiful. And these Gadites and Reubenites say, this looks great. And Moses says, well, then build your cities and folds for your sheep and do what you promised. 
In verses 25 to 27, your servants will do as my Lord commands. Our wives and little ones and livestock and cattle will remain there in the cities of Gilead. Verse 27, but your servants will pass over every man, every man armed for war before the Lord to battle as my Lord orders. Well, so... Even if the broaching of the question at the very beginning seems like a strange turn of events, a concession has been made. An agreement has been understood. Verses 28 to 30, Moses proclaims the agreement. So Moses gave command concerning them to Eleazar the priest and to Joshua. Now why is Moses having to reinforce the agreement in the ears and minds of these others like Eleazar and Joshua? Moses isn't going to be alive Who's the new Moses going to be? It's Joshua. And the new priest is going to be Eliezer. Well, he is the new high priest, Eliezer, and his son, Phinehas. And these will all be crossing over the heads of the father's houses and the tribes. They will all continue without Moses. And so Moses' representation matters. He's going to die soon. At the end of Deuteronomy, in chapter 34, his death will be reported. So he gathers together, if you will, public leaders and witnesses to the agreement. I think that's the idea. It also adds the right social pressure. It's not as if the Gadites and the Reubenites just said, Hey Moses, at midnight tonight, behind the alley on whatever street, let's have a meeting. No, this is is now public. They do not have plausible deniability, okay? Like, if Moses is dead, it doesn't matter. Everybody that matters in Israel's leadership knows what's expected. Moses says in verse 29, If the people of Gad and the people of Reuben, every man who is armed in battle before the Lord, will pass with you over the Jordan, and the land shall be subdued before you, then you shall give them the land of Gilead for a possession. However, if they will not pass over with you armed, they shall have possessions among you in the land of Canaan. That's optimistic. It's optimistic that the Israelites would still be willing to go over. And that the, the Gadites and the Reubenites would be forfeiting whatever they had hoped in Gilead. And then in verses 31 and 32, the people of Gad and the people of Reuben answered, What the Lord has said to your servants, we will do. We'll pass over armed before the Lord into the land of Canaan. And the possession of our inheritance shall remain with us beyond the Jordan. Well, in verses 33 to 42, we have a list of cities. And what's going to happen here is a list of cities that aren't going to mean much to us as readers because of things that aren't associated with them in these earlier stories. But they are going to mean something to the people of Gad, Reuben. And it turns out in verse 33, the half-tribe of Manasseh? Well, where did these come from? We've only seen Reubenites and Gadites so far. It tells us in verse 33, Moses gave to them, to the people of Gad and to the people of Reuben, and to the half-tribe of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, Kingdom of Sihon, king of the Amorites, and the kingdom of Og, king of Bashan, the land and its cities with their territories, the cities of the land throughout the country. And this means in the the land of Sihon and Og, these territories are going to belong to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and apparently half of the tribe of Manasseh wants in on this. And we know... From uh, earlier in Numbers 27, that some people in the tribe of Manasseh were concerned about inheriting the land. We think about the daughters of Zelophehad. And so the, uh, the region here is of interest to people from Manasseh. Uh, half of the tribe. And we'll think about that in a moment. So let's look at some of these names. In verse 34, here, is the people of, here are the people of Gad's inheritance. The people of Gad built Dibon, Ataroth, Aroer, Atroth, Sophan, Jazer, Jogbaha, 
Beth Nimrah and Beth Haran, fortified cities and folds for sheep. So the people of Gad get a series of these cities. And then in verse 37, the people of Reuben, that's, it's their turn. The people of Reuben built Heshbon, Elela, Kiriathim, Nebo, Baalmeon. Their names were changed, and Sibmah. They gave other names to the cities that they built. And it's possible that the changes of some of these names or villages were because of the pagan roots of the names that didn't sit well with maybe some of these Israelites. And they were renamed for a season to reflect um, the commitment that they are pledging to the Lord, perhaps. So in verses 34 through 38, the tribes of Gad and Reuben have a series of cities. But then we learn that the half-tribe of Manasseh is involved in this as well. In verse 39, the sons of Machir, the son of Manasseh, went to Gilead and captured it and dispossessed Amorites who were in it, which tells us that there are still non-Israelites living in this area. And um, if you have... If you have this situation, then there's going to have to be some skirmishes. And I think that's what's stated explicitly in verse 39. Some of these descendants of Manasseh capture more territory. They dispossess Amorites. In verse 40, Moses gave Gilead to Machir, the son of Manasseh, and he settled in it. And Jair, the son of Manasseh, went and captured their villages and called them Havoth Jair. And Nobah went and captured Kenoth and its villages and called it Nobah after his own name. Sometimes like Jair and Nobah in verses 41 and 42, these are people who end up naming something after themselves. Well, we understand how often this takes place in history. Some particular individual goes and uh, conquers something and that ends up bearing some form of their name. Now, through verse 42, what we saw in verses 33 to 42, the last 10 verses were all about the fulfillment of the concession. In other words, you go ahead and start building up these cities. But this is some trust on Moses' part, isn't it? Because has the conquest happened? It has not. Have the Gadites and Reubenites crossed over, fulfilled their bargain, and now are returning? It has not. In other words, they're already set to, with the ball rolling, building up sheepfolds and cities and capturing territory to make their home. Now, in the book of Joshua, here's what I want you to notice. In our last minutes together, I want to see some things outside the book of Numbers. In Joshua 4, here's what we read in Joshua 4, verse 10. Joshua 4, verse 10. For the priests bearing the ark stood in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished that the Lord commanded Joshua to tell the people. According to all that Moses had commanded Joshua, the people passed over in haste. And when all the people had finished passing over, the ark of the Lord and the priests passed over before the people. Carefully, let's look at verse 12. Joshua 4.12. The sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh passed over armed Before the people of Israel, as Moses had told them, okay, so far so good. They had agreed to cross over before the people to get in the front of the battle, so to speak. And they are keeping that into the bargain. In verse 13, about 40,000 ready for war passed over before the Lord for battle to the plains of Jericho. On that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of Israel, and they stood in awe of him just as they had stood in awe of Moses all the days of his life. So you have the time of the crossing of the Jordan take place. So we don't have to wonder in Numbers 32, did they actually cross over? They did cross over. They did cross over. 
And in fact, we're told in Joshua 4, verse 13, about 40,000 troops from Gad, Reuben, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. Now, what's interesting though, Numbers 26 is the second census of these tribes. And in Numbers 26, the men armed for war who would go across the Jordan for battle were numbered, including, of course, by implication, the men of Gad, Reuben, and Manasseh. So I wonder, out of all the armed men that were part of the census counted in Numbers 26, if everybody went over. And now that's a different situation entirely. If you add up Numbers 26 with the Reubenites, Gadites, and Manassites who were armed fighting men, you end up at 137,000 armed men. And how many cross? 40,000. Which is slightly less than 30%. What did the others do? Well, they didn't cross over and fight. They stayed. Despite what they had said to the Lord. To Moses, that is. What about their request anyway? You know, I've framed the message where probably you could imagine the direction I'm heading. I'd see this as ultimately a negative thing that they asked for this. And that Moses formed a concession for them out of perhaps larger concerns that the Israelites might be so discouraged by two tribes backing out that they wouldn't go over as a nation. In church history, commentators and theologians have thought about Numbers 32 and about the request the Israelites had made. And there is division among the interpreters on whether it should be understood as a good thing or a bad thing. Those that would say it's a good thing, they would say, well, the Israelites, you know, they're not wanting land um, that's somewhere else in the ancient Near East. The Lord's given them some recent victories, literally in Numbers 21, that these people were part of. And they're just wanting to settle and what the Lord has already given them. And here they have all this livestock and the Lord has provided, perhaps in Gilead and elsewhere on the eastern side of the Jordan. Wonderful, luscious. Like, why not? Why not say, well, then this is given to us from the Lord. Others have looked at this request and have deemed these Israelites are examples of those not wholly committed to the Lord. And that their concerns, maybe not shared by every Reubenite or every Gadite, at least at large, demonstrate a failure to follow through. And I want to give you several reasons why I think that second way of looking at this story is the better reading of the evidence. There are several reasons to consider that the Gadites and the Reubenites should not have approached Moses like this. First of all, the next chapter in Numbers, no, two chapters away, in Numbers 34, gives us the boundaries of the land of promise. And the Jordan River is the eastern boundary of the land of promise. According to the book of Numbers... Like, I know that they're just like right on the other side of the Jordan River. But still, formally speaking, according to Numbers 34, they are living outside the promised land. They asked for that. They said, let us not cross over. When crossing the Jordan River was to be understood as entering the promised land. At no point in the book of Numbers are we to be understanding that because they're in the plains of Moab right now, that they're already in the promised land. No, Moses is denied entrance into the promised land. 
So we know from the narrative of the story and the boundaries of Numbers 34, this is not considered the promised land proper. And these Israelites from Gad and, and half-tribe of Manasseh and Reuben are saying, we don't want to go over and inherit the land. So I think Numbers 34 is a piece of evidence to consider because of how close it is to the episode in this story. Reason number two. Their request is eerily reminiscent of Numbers 13 and 14, the wilderness generation, who gave a reason why they didn't want to go into the land. Now, I know the reasons were different, but Moses himself is reminded of that earlier generation. He just retells the whole story to them. He's like, your fathers did this. It angered the Lord. Here's what the Lord said, and you've risen up in their place. You know what their request reminds Moses of? The kind of thing that ought not to be said that their ancestors had said. So in Numbers 13 and 14, Moses' response is is a frustration with their request. Because they literally said in verse 5, don't take us over the Jordan. Because some people have said, well, you know what? The the reason this can be understood as positive is because of the agreement that's been made. They're going to go fight and they're going to come back. Listen, friend, their opening statement to Moses didn't say, we'll go over and fight. They just said, can we stay here? Don't make us cross over. And for Moses, that was just beyond the pale. I think we should see that their desire was not to go and fight for the land because it wasn't going to be theirs. They just want to stay here. So for Moses, it reminds him and ought to remind us of the earlier request in Numbers 13 and 14, not so much request, as panic and unbelieving and rebellious action of the wilderness generation. Number three, I think there's a disturbing echo of the story of Lot and Abraham. You know, in Genesis 13, Lot, Abraham's nephew, is in the promised land, and their possessions and livestock are many. And Lot's reasoning is, well, I guess I should live outside the promised land. I've got so much livestock. And any Israelite that settles outside the promised land in clear geographical removal of the land of promise, which Abraham is... Like, this wasn't some later generation of Abraham. This is Abraham's nephew, a contemporary of his uncle. And here you have Uncle Abraham and nephew Lot having this discussion. And Lot is saying, I'm going to live over here. And then we know how that turned out. In Genesis 14, Lot was kidnapped... In Genesis 18 and 19, Lot is rescued barely with an oncoming judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. And Lot's wife perishes because she turns back, no doubt with a sense of identity, to a place that had become her home, which was not the land of promise. So I want to suggest to you that the story of Abraham and Lot with an issue of livestock and where one is going to live could be an ominous, informing guide to our story tonight. Number four. There's six reasons that I'm giving you. Here's number four. There's the focus on what this land on the eastern side can offer. They say in Numbers chapter 32, um, we have, we have uh, this livestock, and in verse one, they see that this is a place for livestock. Well, wait a second. If there is a focus on what the land on the eastern side of Jordan can offer, is it because they think the promised land lacks this? 
In other words, they look at the, the eastern side of the Jordan and they say, well, now here's a place luscious and livestock bearing. This is great. But what about a land flowing with milk and honey they were delivered from Egyptian bondage to receive? Is this some inferior land? Do they think that if they bring their livestock in, it will lack resources? In other words, they look at this side of the Jordan River and they describe this land as what they need rather than trusting in the earlier explanation of what the land of promise would be for the people of God if they would heed his word and walk in the blessing of wisdom. So I think reason number four here is that there's an unhealthy focus on the eastern side of the Jordan River's land as if the promised land, what is it, lacking or deficient in some way? How would they know? They've not been. Number five, at the end of this chapter, it is Moses who concedes this with the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. There's no approach to the meeting place of the tabernacle. There's no word from the Lord. I just want to press the point that they ask Moses for this land. And in chapter 32, 33, it says Moses gave it to them. This is not the way it would have been. In other words, earlier in Numbers 26, the promised land we learned was to be apportioned by lots. The promised land was to be given to certain, the, the land's allotments were to be sized by the size of the actual people in the tribes, but the location was to be drawn by lot itself. This is not that, is it? In this fifth reason I'm giving you, I'm trying to remind us that Moses gives them this land. This was not part of their promised inheritance in the land between the Mediterranean Sea and the Jordan River. This was not a land that was received after the conquest and drawn by lot like the other territories were to be. This is different. And then lastly, reason number six. You know, many centuries after this event, the Israelites will be taken into captivity. It won't be Egypt this time. Babylon, led by Nebuchadnezzar, is going to destroy Jerusalem and the temple in 586 B.C. And when Nebuchadnezzar takes the Israelites into captivity, they will be told by the prophets of God, God will deliver you from captivity again. It's going to be another exodus going to raise up a deliverer for you, you will be able to return to the promised land. And the Israelites return from captivity. And yet the focus is on return this side of the Jordan River. The big deal was not to get to these territories, but rather to once again go across the Jordan to the land of promise. So even post-exile, post-Babylonian captivity, what was the big deal driving the Israelites for their return? It was the area between the Mediterranean and the Jordan River. And I think that suggests that even in the larger history and timeline of Israel, this was not understood to be the promised land proper in the way the book of Numbers and Deuteronomy and the book of Joshua and the other historical narratives lay out. So for these six reasons and more... I'm not convinced this was the right thing for the Gadites and Reubenites to approach with. There's too much concern in the text and in areas around it in context that put it in a a posture of they're not asking this for good reasons. 
They have a mere practical concern. Moses is also worried about them keeping their word. He says, judgment of the Lord will come. Your sin will find you out. When you look at what they did, what you have here on this rather cartoonish looking map compared to the nice one we just saw, um, is here you have the Sea of Galilee and the Jordan River and the Dead Sea. And so what do you have on the eastern side of the Jordan River? Well, you have Gad and Reuben and half-tribe of Manasseh. And the other is going to be on the, east, the western side of the Jordan. But Sea of Galilee, Jordan River, and Dead Sea. When you look at Bible maps that show you the allotted territories, you have the majority of the Israelites on the western side, as you would expect. But we're reminded by our Bible maps, not all the Israelites ended up across the Jordan River to live. Why? Well, Numbers 32. Numbers 32 is why. And if you say, well, then why was that, though? Why is it that they wanted these regions? And I offered six reasons why I think they didn't ask for good reasons. In other words, hope in the promises of God, commitment to the covenantal uh, life of Abraham's family and descendants, it would lead you to seeing the importance of the land of promise for your people. And they said, well, we've got these flocks and we've got this land of Gilead. What if we just stayed? They've come so far. And you wonder, well, what is it that they were ultimately committed to? What is it that drives them? And I think that we have reasons to be concerned then spiritually within the text. Moses was certainly concerned spiritually with what he believed was happening right before his eyes. And that if they didn't follow through on their word, not only would their sin find them out, it would find them out in a way that would mean judgment from the Lord. I think in a way, this passage, this chapter can be a warning for us. And not because we are, you know, looking at uh, the same allotted territories in our present or future. It's to say that we are a people forward-looking, that by the promises of God, He has prepared a place for us. And we must not be those who stop short. Who look at the things of the world or distracted this or that and say, well, you know, maybe this is a good compromise here. Maybe I've gone far enough and long enough. No, friend, not until the new creation we haven't. And if we will trust the Lord and if we will persevere, we need not be concerned. But, you know, what about what I've got going on here? What about what's on the other side of the... This seems fine the way it is with us here. But what the Lord has promised about what is to come holds true. And He can be trusted with it. He will be shown faithful in it. We need to be those who are warned about our fickleness and wavering hearts that could evaluate things wrongly and conclude ways of living that are unwise. Be sure, be sure, the Word of God says, your sin will find you out. Let us be those who are seeking first the kingdom of God. Let us be those whom Jesus says, listen, if anyone wants to come after me, he's got to deny himself, take up his cross and come after me. Jesus says, be like the one seeking the kingdom whose hand is to the plow and, and, uh, and eyes ahead. And the one looking back, he said, is not worthy to follow me. And I worry that when I look in Numbers 32, that these are the kind of people who would put a hand to the plow and are looking all around them. And aren't seeking first the kingdom. It seems that if they were seeking first the kingdom, they would have not only been the first to cross the Jordan River, they would have been glad to stay. Let's stay.